Well, good morning, church family. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. It's a joy to be together. You know, when I am not having a part in the service, I typically tend to sit in the back. And it's just a joy when I get to sit up front and really hear your voices in singing and worship. And it was just a special time for me this morning. And just want to thank you and commend you for your singing to the Lord and giving praise to Him. And what a joy it is to hear that corporately. So thank you. If you are new to Highlands or visiting this morning, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here uh, at Highlands, and so we welcome you this morning. For the past couple months, we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Philippians, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 4. We've been in chapter 4 for the past couple, for about the past couple months, the last two sermons. But this morning we find ourselves here, we're going to primarily be focusing on verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Philippians, planted the church in Philippi in about 50 A.D. during his second missionary journey. Uh, So Paul was very familiar with these believers in this church at Philippi, and he loved them very much. And this letter that he wrote to these believers in this church really is a letter of friendship, of affectionate friendship. This letter is really less apologetic or less less of a... defense of the gospel, I guess, in a, in a way, than many of his other letters that he has written are or, or have been. But in this letter, he has done certain things so far. In this letter, he has given thanks to the people in this church for their partnership in the gospel. He expresses his affection for them. He acknowledges how his suffering, and, and remember that Paul is writing this letter as he is in prison suffering for the sake of the gospel, but he acknowledges that his suffering is actually serving to advance the gospel. And, and in so much in ways that it's actually causing other believers to be more bold to preach the gospel. And to that he gives thanks. He encourages, he encourages their humility. He has warned them about false teachers. He has encouraged them to righteous living. He has encouraged them to unity and to agree with one another in the Lord multiple times In this book already, he has instructed them to be of the same mind. He has called them, as a group of believing people, to agree in the Lord. And now as we come to these verses in chapter 4, Paul is really pressing in to these Philippian believers something that he wants them to know about God's peace. And not, not just to know this about God's peace, but Paul wants them to experience God's peace. So as we jump into the next, this next section, I want to ask us a couple questions. What do you think about when you are discouraged? When you are depressed? When you're under extreme pressure, where does your mind go to for comfort? What do you seek? What are the things that you think about? Well, these next verses are really going to give us the right answer to where our mind should go. But first, I want us to remember and consider the turmoil that Paul found himself in as he wrote this letter. Again, remember that Paul's in prison. He's already spoken about things like joy and thankfulness and contentment. So how how in the world could Paul have had peace under such extreme circumstances? Where he's in prison, his freedoms have been taken away from him, he's facing death. How does he find peace, joy, and thankfulness? Well, what Paul does in verses 4 through 9 is really provide us a snapshot into his trust and his thought life. And what Paul teaches us is that the result of following what he's about to tell us is God's peace. And this is not just a humanistic peace, but this is the peace of God. Let's look at Philippians 
verses 4, or I'm sorry, chapter 4, 4 through 9. We're going to read this again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul is really doing in these verses is really giving us the antidote to the problem of a lack of peace in our lives. So Christian, do you lack peace? Remember that, remember that Paul is writing to a group of believers. Okay? So these are a group of people, these are a people who are at peace with God. There's a difference between being at peace with God and having the peace of God. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are at peace with God. God has poured out his wrath upon his son. God's wrath is no longer upon you, and you are at peace with God. But it is completely possible to be at peace with God, but not experience the peace of God. As Christians, for example, if we live in active rebellion to God, in sin, we're not going to experience God's peace. It's going to be disrupted. So this is speaking to an experiential peace in which we relationally sense God's presence and comfort. So this peace can be disrupted. It can be disrupted through sin. It can be disrupted through things like anxiety, like we've seen in the previous set of verses, 4 through 7. So if you are anxious, why are you anxious? I am prone to anxiousness. I struggle with that. Why do we become anxious? It may be that there's some idol in our lives that we place higher value on than we do on Jesus himself. This could be our jobs. This could be our careers, our, our houses, our cars, our comforts. And if we place too high of a value on those things, and the, and the value of those things is higher than the value of God in our lives, then we're going to be anxious when those things are threatened. When we're at fear of losing the things that are most important to us, we're going to suffer anxiousness. What Paul calls us to in verses 4 through 7 is to exchange our anxieties with trust and prayer. I'm going to read those verses again, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pastor Sean preached on these verses a few weeks back. And one of the things that we learned is that we can trust God because he will get it right. We can trust him. That should help us to, to relieve the anxieties in our life, knowing that no matter what, God is sovereign, that God is in control. Verse 7 really shows us the result of trusting God and praying instead of being anxious. It's the peace of God. That's the result. When we trust God, when we pray, 
We experience his peace. Friends, the cure for anxiety is trust and prayer. But notice then, at the end of verse 9, it also ends with, the God of peace be with you. And this is after verse 8, which he gives us another list of things. Again, remember, Paul is writing to a people who are at peace with God, but he's talking to them about experiencing the peace of God. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. We're going to read these again as well. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, there's really nothing that's necessarily really striking about these verses at a first read, but they're really different than most of Paul's preaching or most of Paul's teaching and the other things that he has written. Paul is typically very direct, specific, apologetic, and polemic in a lot of what he has written. But really what he has done here is given us a list of six things that is relatively vague. In other words, he hasn't given us any specifics in regards to what is true, what is honorable, what is just, pure, lovely, commendable, or even excellent or praiseworthy. But what Paul has done here is given us a list of virtues. Okay, and the language of verse 8 would have been language that would have been very familiar to the people in Philippi. It would have been very familiar to these believers because of their background. <clears throat> you see, Philippi was a city in Greece located near the Roman, uh, a Roman providence in Macedonia. And therefore, the converts of this church in Philippi would have been primarily Gentile. Philippi was a Hellenistic society. In other words, they would have been very influenced by Greek culture. And Greek culture was very in, heavily into philosophy. In fact, some of those, they would have been very familiar with some of the most well-known philosophers of Greek philosophy, which would have been like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. They would have been familiar with these philosophers. They would have been familiar with their teachings and the, with the virtues that they taught and the virtues that they lived by. Because culturally, they would have been very immersed in these things. And philosophy has, to do, has a lot to do with our thought life, with the way that we think. And these philosophers knew something that was true, yet for them it was misguided. But they knew something that was true. What they knew to be true and is true is that our experience in life has a lot to do with the way that we think. Paul here in verse 8 seems to be using language they would have been very familiar with culturally. He sees the ability as well to have the experiential peace of God in our daily life. He sees that that is largely connected to the way that we think. Now, now don't hear this wrong. What Paul is not doing here, he is not embracing pagan moralism. That is not what this is about. He's not embracing the Greek culture but he's recognizing truth that there's a battleground in our minds. And what he is saying is that the battle for peace, for the, even for the Christian, is largely fought in our minds. So, so consider for a moment our struggles with sin. Why is it that we, at times, can really struggle with habitual sin in our lives? It has a lot to do with our thought life. So, so when those... When those sinful thoughts creep into our mind, and we're, what are we prone to do? We're prone to dwell on those things. 
And whatever we continue to choose to dwell on is going to influence the way that we act. It's going to influence the way that we live. It's going to affect our experience in life. So what we need to do when those thoughts creep in our minds, we need to be able to replace those thoughts with different things. And that's what Paul is pressing into. We have this battle in our mind. We can choose to dwell on sinful things, or we can choose to dwell on things that are right. Choosing to dwell on sin will lead to sin, and will lead to a lack of peace in our lives. Choosing to dwell on things that are right and true and good lead to God's peace in our lives. Look at verse 8 again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what? The end of verse 9. And the peace of God will be with you. So what specifically is Paul calling these believers and us by extension to think about? What Paul is doing here is calling these believers to think about everything that is good in the life of Jesus. Everything that is good in the life of Jesus. And this is clear by what we see in the first half of verse 9. Look at what it says. Verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Paul is calling them to example him as he himself Examples Christ. And we know this because Paul's call to these believers to example him is directly connected to what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul's not making himself the example, but Paul is pointing these believers to Jesus. That's the standard. So whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable is found in the life of Jesus. He is our example. And we are called, then, to think about the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus loved. And that is the example that Paul is calling us to follow. When he says to imitate me, he's telling them to imitate Christ. And although Paul is primarily calling them to think about the life of Jesus, and example him, he also seems to be calling them to think about all that is good in their society. This is clear from the end of verse 8, because after the list of these six adjectives, or the six virtues, he says this, he says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Gordon Fee says this, he says, Paul was a man of two worlds, which had become uniquely blended through his encounter with the risen, risen Christ, Christ's death and resurrection, marking the end of the old era and the beginning of a new, radically transformed Paul's Jewish theology, which he in turn radically applied to the Greco-Roman world, with which, as a diaspora Jew, he was so familiar. Thus the people whom Christ had rescued from being without God and hope in the world are now encouraged in the language of that world to consider what is noble and praiseworthy. And here's the key as long as it conforms to what they have learned and seen in Paul about Christ. So what Paul is not doing then, what Paul is not telling them, is to look at everything in society, pick out the things that you like, 
you think are good, and think about those things. It's not necessarily, that's not really what he's doing. But he's calling them to look at the good, even in society, and to think about those things as long as they conformed to what we know about Christ. And there are many things in society that we can think about that can be good and praiseworthy, that, that have excellence and praise, praiseworthiness, right? So think about it like this. <clears throat> Silly examples, I know, but is it good to be a good employee? Well, sure, it is. And we know because we're told in Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So is it good to think about being a good employee? Yes. Is there excellence in that? Yes, there is. Here's another example. Is it good for us, is it good and praiseworthy to think about being in a society where we have freedoms? Well, that can be a yes and a no. It can be an idol. But can there be praiseworthiness found in something like that? Yes. Because we can thank God for that. If it draws our hearts, to, our hearts and our minds to praise, we can thank God for that. <clears throat> James 1.17 tells us every good a perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So can it be, is there anything praiseworthy about us thinking about and being thankful for living in a free society? Yes. We can thank God it's a gift of His grace. We can think about these things, and it's good. We could go on and on about examples about what is excellent and praiseworthy. But what Paul is calling us to is really primarily to light the Jesus example. Everything that is good is found in him. And to remember that the things that we think about are the things that are going to influence the way that we live. They're going to influence our Christian experience. They're going to affect our Christian experience. And I want to be clear here, what Paul is not doing is this is not a call to legalism. Like what, in verses 4 through 9, Paul has not just simply given them a do this, do this list. In other words, it's not, okay, well, I just, I need to trust better, I need to, I need to think better, I need to pray more. I need, it's not just a to-do list. And we know this because None of us can, in, in, in our own strength, none of us can think good enough. None of us can do good enough. We need God's help and His power. And Paul shows us this. In the verses that follow 8 and 9, in verses 12 and 13, Paul has told us something that, that he's actually said that he's learned a secret. And the secret that he has learned is how to be content in all things. Paul says, I've learned to be content with nothing. I've also learned to be content with having a lot. So what's Paul's secret? What's found in Philippians 4, verse 13? Look there with me. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul sees his strength to contentment, to peace, to right thinking to all these things as being found in the strength of Christ. Found in the strength of His Spirit. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul has learned that in addition to his thought life, a necessary ingredient to finding contentment and peace is the strength of God. 
to being empowered by His Spirit to help us to think right, to have His peace. Paul understood that the power to not having anxiety and to right thinking was through the strengthening of the Spirit of Christ. Look what Je- Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It is the Spirit that helps us. It's the Spirit that reminds us of the things of Jesus. It is the Spirit that brings to our remembrance the things that He taught and helps us to direct our minds to that which is good. We have, a dis- we have a dependency upon the Spirit of God to help us with these things, even to help us to think right. So how are we to think about and how are we to understand these virtues? Whatever is true, what is true? Well, as Gordon Fee describes it, Paul finds the measure of truth in God and in the gospel. And as a virtue... It is found in true speech versus a lie. And we see that in Proverbs. So in other words, truth is according to all that God is. Listen to Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. The measure of truth is in God, and here it's a description of a people that are not thinking about truth, but they're suppressing that truth. This truth is always grounded in God. As Proverbs teaches us, it's in true speech versus versus a lie. So what is noble? Proverbs 8, 6 tells us here, For I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. So what is noble? These are things that are honorable, true, worthy of respect. What is right? Well, this is really connected to truth. Finds its measure in who God is and not simply in human understanding. And this really flies in the face of our postmodern thinking, doesn't it? Where our postmodern culture would say, you know what, truth is whatever you decide it is. Truth is who you decide you are. Truth is whatever... Truth is relative. Truth is up to you. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And that's just truth. Well, that's not truth. (laughs) Truth finds its measure in God, in who he is. Paul's understanding of what is right is determined by God and his relationship with his people. So what is pure? Well, Proverbs 15, 26 tells us, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. And this can really be connected to motive, because if we look a little bit earlier in Philippians, back to chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, it says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish, selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what is pure? What is pure are those things that are motivated, rightly motivated by the gospel and gospel living. Those things are pure. What is lovely? William Hendrickson says this, 
That which is lovely, amiable, pleasing, breathes love and evokes love. Let believers meditate and take into account all such things. And this is true, but Gordon, Gordon Fee spreads the net more broadly and he adds this. He says, in common parlance, this word could refer to a Beethoven symphony as well as the work of Mother Teresa among the poor of Calcutta. The former is lovely and enjoyable. The latter is admirable as well as moral. So it is good to meditate on what invokes love. But it is also good to think about and thank God for the good and moral things in life, the things that we can enjoy. What is admirable? This word is really closely linked to lovely. It likely presses into the kind of conduct that would be well spoken of of other people. Matthew 5.16 tells us, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here we're called to think about what kind of conduct would cause others to glorify God. What kind of conduct would be spoken well of by others? Paul concludes this list. Whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy. In other words, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about these things. Paul's given us numerous snapshots into his thought life. And we learn from these glimpses. What we learn from these glimpses is Paul's understanding of what enables peace and joy in all circumstances. And here's just some of what Paul reveals about his own thought life. For one, he considered everything that he had gained as a Pharisee, all the notoriety, all the knowledge, he considered it all to be loss. Why? He said it's of no value to him. Why? He says in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul valued knowing Jesus much more than he valued anything else in life. He valued it much more than the pride of position. He valued it much more than all the knowledge that he had gained. He didn't pride himself in those things as he once did. But for the sake of knowing Christ, it was so much more value to so much more valuable to him. We're also given a glimpse into the mind of Jesus. As Paul sought to example Jesus, it is necessary for us to also understand the mindset of Jesus. And in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul tells us to have the same mind that Jesus had. In verses two, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul as well exampled this mindset. 
Philippians 1, verses 19 to 20. It says this, For I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Notice two things here. Paul understands his need for prayer and the help of the Spirit. He hasn't mustered up the strength on his own. This isn't Paul pulling himself up by his bootstraps and saying that I've got the strength to do all this. No. He recognizes that he needs the help of the Spirit. But secondly, notice that in Paul's thought life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he had the same mind to honor God the Father even to the point of death in the same way that Jesus did. Paul is telling us to have this mind among ourselves. Paul understands that there's a battleground in our mind. And much of our experience in life is going to depend on what we choose to do with that. He's calling us to think right thoughts. To, give our, to train our minds to think about what is right to not think about sinful thoughts, to not think about worldly thoughts. And this takes work on our part, doesn't it? Because when we have thoughts in our mind that are not pleasing, it takes work and it takes effort because we're prone. I mean, our natural tendency is to dwell on the things that are in our mind, right? So this is going to take work on our part. But it's not all in our human effort. We trust in God's strength. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. So as we begin to conclude this morning, I'd invite the music team to come up at this time. And in conclusion, I'll ask again the questions that we started with. What do you think about when you are discouraged, when you are depressed, when you're under extreme pressure? Where does your mind go? For comfort. And I'll add the question, when you're thinking sinful thoughts, what do you choose to do with that? The clarion call of Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9, is to do battle in your mind. Think about all that is good in Jesus. Pray and trust God. And it's okay to think about the good things in life in so much as they conform to what we have seen in the life of Christ, the goodness that we have seen in Jesus. Believer, much of the battle in the Christian life is fought in our minds. What we think about most will determine our actions and the way that we live. Friends, my prayer for us this morning is that we would set our mind upon the things of God, that we would be disciplined to think rightly, to trust in our gracious God, to pray for help and have minds minds that are set on the things of Him.